Joshua chapter 3. Once again, Brother Pittman has inflicted me on you. And, um, he just does that contrast. So once I'm done, you say, boy, Pastor really is good after all. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm always thankful for the opportunity to fill in uh, whatever I'm doing here and uh, get situated. There we go. All right. It is good to see everyone over here. And um, are the are, are the Bengals here or away? Here. They're here, so they're going to get rained on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish them well. <laughs> and uh, they uh, had a smash up season last year and nobody expected it, I think but they came through and uh, came within that close of winning it all so we look forward to seeing what they do this year that's not what we're here to talk about and um, uh, we, we do want to uh, be serious now before we do that I, you know I've always got to tell a story but my wife has been observing uh, our neighbors and she told me the other day, she said, have you ever noticed said, uh, that every time that man leaves the house, he always kisses his wife goodbye. And uh, she said, why don't you do that? I said, honey, I don't even know that lady. So, uh, <laughs> um, Joshua I hate it when my wife talks to me um, let's see if we can silence this whole mess here if you haven't turned your phones on silence it's a good time to do it um, the book of Joshua and we're studying of Joshua Judges and uh, Ruth in this quarter uh, uh, and uh, I am uh, I had the privilege of teaching this lesson because we get the, 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 the uh, Israelites into the promised land. And uh, that's a great thing. And so the title of the lesson today is Claiming the Promised Possession. The text uh, is Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then 14 through 17. And those will be the ones that we focus on uh, primarily. Uh, it's Actually, this lesson covers up through chapter 5, but uh, we don't have uh, time to get into everything there. In fact, uh, we're going to be skipping a lot, but um, anyway, um, we want to uh, look at the key verse, which is Joshua 3, 5. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And we'll talk more about that verse as we get to it. So, seeking the context uh, here, and uh, I want to revisit uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And I'm not trying to uh, correct Brother Galt or anything. He did a great job. But there's something here that, that just caught my eye, and um, where it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. And uh, many... Uh, sermons have been preached on that, especially when uh, uh, a pastor comes in replacing 
another pastor, and uh, a lot of times they'll use this text, Moses, my servant is dead. I'm on the scene now, and you know, whatever. Um, but I, you know, if you think about that, Moses, my servant is dead, I want to focus on what God could have said about Moses. Here he's, he's uh, giving tribute to Moses. Moses, my servant, is dead. But you know, he could have said, Moses, my murderer, is dead. Um, remember, he killed the Egyptian man uh, back uh, many years uh, earlier. He could have said, Moses, my doubter, is dead. But you know, God came to him and said, I want you to go and, and confront Moses or Pharaoh and and tell him to set people free. And well, you know, I don't know about that. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. I can't talk very plain. And um, so, he, you know, God could have said, Moses, my doubter, has died. Or, Moses, my hothead, is dead. He got angry at, at the children of Israel and struck the rock the second time and uh, lost his ticket to the promised land. I mean, that was a very, very severe uh, breach of, uh, of God's uh, commands. Uh, and uh, just because he was angry, and i tell you what, we can sure do things when we're angry that, that uh, you know, have long-lasting consequences. But uh, God did not uh, do that. God is a gracious God. And he chose to honor the memory of Moses by calling him my servant. My servant. Um, and I, I'm just preaching a little bit here. Um, Brother Ed and I will talk about that a minute ago. He said, you're going to preach or you're going to teach. But Brother um, Pittman always accuses me of preaching instead of teaching. And um, I, I guess I'm guilty of that. But... Uh, I'm glad that we are not defined by our weak moments. Moses had plenty of weak moments. But guess what? So do the rest of us as well. And God doesn't define us uh, by those. In uh, Psalm 130 verse 3, he said, Thou, O Lord, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. In other words, if you're keeping score, O Lord, who shall stand? I mean, if, if, if God's keeping track of all that stuff, then uh, we don't have a chance. But uh, God doesn't define us by our weak moments. Psalm 37, 24, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. So in spite of his flaws, Moses became perhaps the greatest example of leadership in history. Uh, now, you know, you think he, he led all of these Jews, which may have numbered two to three million, and he's not just ruling over them from a palace, you know, like a king. He's leading them on a wilderness uh, journey, the wilderness wandering, and did so successfully. And uh, he was their spiritual leader. And he was their judge in, in matters that needed uh, arbitration. And uh, so, so many things that Moses did. And he managed to hold it all together during this time when literally a generation 
was just waiting to die off so that the new generation could go into the promised land. And uh, now Joshua comes on the scene and he has to replace Moses. I mean, that's a daunting task to follow someone like Moses. I mean, Moses is one of the few men that were revered for, the, you know, and if you look in the New Testament times, they often referred to Abraham, and then they referred to King David, uh, and then many times they referred to Moses, because Moses was the recipient and the giver of uh, the law. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what Joshua was feeling when he found, you know, when he was chosen to uh, replace Moses. And you don't replace someone, you just follow them. Uh, a couple examples that I can think of in, in my lifetime. I remember when um, Brother Clarence Walker at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington, when he uh, stepped down as pastor, he'd been pastor for 50 years at that church. 50 years. And um, they had met, most of those people had never known uh, any other pastor besides Brother Walker. And when he finally stepped down, his health wouldn't allow him to continue any longer. Um, Brother Ross Range was called as pastor. And he, he really had a tough time. Now, he did a great job. And Brother Range was pastor for a long time as well. But uh, he had a tough time following... Um, uh, Brother, uh, Brother Walker. Or we could even look to uh, some history here at Addison Baptist. Um, most of you, I think, will remember uh, Brother Hubert Riley as the Sunday School Superintendent. And uh, what a great job he did. And I remember Brother Riley. And can you imagine Brother Benjamin having to follow Hubert Riley as Sunday School Superintendent? Well, he did. And he did it. Uh, now, very well. Well, then after him, Brother Gall has to come in and succeed Buddy Benjamin. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's big shoes to fill. So try to put yourself in, in Joshua's place. I mean, he's following Moses, the great Moses. And I can imagine the people saying in his first few days, well, Moses sure didn't do it like that. You know, that's... Uh, and that's the way we, we react sometimes uh, when uh, we have a new pastor, a new leader of some kind. Well, you know, our previous guy, he didn't do it uh, like that. And uh, he had a tough act. Joshua had a tough act to follow, as we say. But in situations like that, and I do have a point that I'm doing to here, uh, God does not leave us just twisting in the wind and saying, sorry, you know, You've drawn the short straw. You've got to do the best you can. Look at Joshua 3, 7 with me. Because this is not one of the verses that we're covering in the, in the lesson. The Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so, will, uh, so I will be with thee. Um, it's great. God told Joshua, look, I know you're following Moses. And, and yes, I was with Moses, but I'm going to magnify you in the sight of the people. 
I'm going to make you look good. And uh, that's, a, uh, uh, I think, a, a wonderful trait of good leadership is to make others look good. He said, Moses, or uh, Joshua, you're going to shine. And I'm going to, I'm going to start today. And of course, that's with the crossing of the Jordan. And uh, if God puts you in the position of following um, a legend, whether it be in a position in the church, Sunday school teacher, uh, or, or whatever, um, and he wants you to know that he understands the difficulties that are involved in that, and he will see to it that you have the opportunity to be as successful as your predecessor uh, was. And uh, that's, this is a wonderful example of how God uh, doesn't just stick us in a position and say, do the best you can, but he helps us through it. And he says, I'll magnify you, Joshua, in the sight of the people. Well, that brings us to our text uh, for today. So we're going to be searching the text as the, uh, um, uh, the book uh, lesson uh, tells us. First thing we're going to study here is seeing the Jordan. This is in verse 1. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. Um, now Joshua 3.15 tells us that this was at a time when the Jordan River was in flood stages. Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time uh, of harvest. And it was not an accident that God brought Israel to the river crossing at a time when uh, the Jordan was flooded. Now, perhaps in the dry season, it wouldn't have been terribly difficult to cross the river. I don't know. I hadn't really studied up on it. Uh, there were certain places where they would cross uh the river at the, in, in drier times where it was possible perhaps to wade across or at least to only swim a short distance. But Israel is facing a flooded, overflowing body of water. And think about it. You've got several million people that have to cross over. Plus, you've got infants, you've got children, you've got livestock, um, you have possession and uh, so this is a very uh, daunting uh, uh, thing here to cross the Jordan when it's flooded. I'm sure that some of them doubted. Some of them that hadn't seen the Red Sea, we'll talk about that in a minute, hadn't seen the Red Sea crossing, uh, they no doubt uh, had their doubts about how this was all going to go down. And others probably remembered the Red Sea crossing that had happened 40 years before. And they may have thought, you know, if God can part the sea, then surely he can take care of one uh, river. But I think God wanted them to realize beyond doubt that their entrance into Canaan was by a miraculous hand. And this would set the tone for the conquest of the land. The land was delivered to them. One victory after another through the miraculous provision uh, of God. And uh, so God wanted them to know 
as they crossed the, the Jordan River. There was no doubt this was a miraculous uh, occurrence. And um, the entering of the Promised Land is a picture of our achieving God's best for our lives. Uh, sometimes we call it living the abundant life, living the uh, victorious uh, life. Well, that's a, when you can have victory over Jordan and victory over Jericho and the various victories they had. That's the victorious life. That's the abundant life. Uh, a lot of times, uh, the promised land is, is uh, applied to, to mean heaven. But really, I think that's incorrect. We don't have to fight to enter heaven. We don't have to conquer heaven one battle uh, at a time. Uh, when we uh, get to heaven, then the battle, there's no more fighting, no more battles. Uh, but we certainly are fighting battles in this present world. Uh, we face challenges daily, uh, just as Israel did as they claimed their promised inheritance. So they came to Jordan and they saw the river there. And uh, they saw uh, a, a challenge that uh, lay before them. Well, secondly, they were seeing the ark, seeing the ark in verses 2 through 4 of Joshua. It came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host and they commanded the people saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, by measure, come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way uh, heretofore. The Ark of the Covenant was always at the front when Israel was on the move. Um, they, it was just always the very first thing uh, in, the, uh, in the procession. And it represented the presence of God leading the people. In verse 3, uh, the people were commanded, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, then remove from your place and go after it. He said, don't ask questions. Don't hesitate. When you see the Ark start moving, then it's time for you to move and follow it. Now, was God in the Ark? Was God in the box? Well, no, you can't confine God to a container. But the ark represented God's presence among them. And uh, when the ark was situated in the uh, tabernacle and uh, uh, the, the Day of Atonement would come, and the priest would go in there and put the blood, uh, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and God would actually meet with man at, uh, at that very Place. And so the ark um, uh, represented God's presence among them. Do you remember what happened when the Philistines stole the ark from Israel? Um, you may not be familiar with the story. They put the ark in with their own gods, and their god fell over on his face the first night, so they stood him up. The next night, he, he fell over, the palms of his hands were cut off and they said we gotta get this thing out of here and so they sent the ark away and wherever the ark went and I don't know how to put this 
uh, delicately, uh, but there was a lot of people standing around in Israel. They were having trouble sitting down, and I'll just leave it at that. But uh, uh, God's presence was associated with that ark. Now, something else to observe here, verse 4, and that is that there was to be a space between the ark and the people following of 2,000 cubits. Uh, if we accept a cubit as being about 18 inches, then this would work out to more than half of a mile. So it, it was a good way. The ark was always a good way in front of the people as they marched. Now what's the significance of this? Well, first and foremost, no one was permitted to touch the ark for any reason. Remember Uzzah? He meant well. David had uh, presumptuously put the ark on a cart after it had been stolen by the Philistines and they're, they're sending it back. And David said, well, you know, it's a long way to carry, carry the thing on your shoulders uh, with the stage. So we'll just put it on a new cart. God never talked about a new cart. Never authorized a new cart. Well, the oxen shook the cart at one, play, at one point and the ark looked like it was going to fall off of the cart. And Uzzah, meaning well, put up his hand to steady the ark. And God struck him dead immediately. I mean, no questions asked, no warning, nothing. God struck him dead. So nobody was permitted to touch the ark for any reason. Now, secondly, we're talking about this distance now between the people and the ark. Um, if the ark were right up close to a group of people this size, then it would not be visible to everyone. Um, it, but when you placed it ahead of the group at such a distance, then it would be visible to um, everybody. Third, and this is my opinion, um, we need to remember that God is higher than us. He's above us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there's a distance to be maintained between us and God. And I'm talking about familiarity. We should not treat God with casual familiarity. You know what familiarity does? It breeds contempt. Now it's true that we may come boldly to the throne of grace and we have received the spirit of adoption that enables us to call God Abba, which is the uh, personal uh, form of, uh, personal name of God. Yet there is a line between that relationship and the attitude that seems to be prevalent among many that God's my buddy, God's my pal. Remember the song, uh, if you haven't heard it, it was just as well. Me and Jesus, we've got our own thing going. Um, I, I reject that. Um, the, the model prayer that Jesus gave us begins, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God is not your pal. He's not your BFF. Y'all know what that means. Ask, ask Brother Ed, I think you know. But uh, uh, 
God is, is not our buddy. Uh, I think there is still a distance between um, us and uh, a God who is exalted, a God who is righteous, a God who is uh, high and lifted up. And so I, I think maybe that has a part in the significance of the space between the people uh, and the ark. Well, moving on now, we talked talk, talk about seeing the Jordan and seeing the ark, now seeing the Lord. Let's read these verses, verse 5 and 14 through 17. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is beside Zeratan. And those that came down toward the Sea of the Plain, even the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all his lights passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Three things I want you to see here. First of all, the focus of the people. It says that they were to prepare themselves for the next day. If you get your Bible over, look at verse 5. It says, sanctify yourselves. That meant, look, for this period of time, for this event, you need to be especially dedicated and focused on what was happening at that moment. This is not a time for distractions. This is not a time for work. Not a time for pleasure. We're going to focus on the ark, on the Lord, on the Jordan River, crossing over the Jordan. We're going to focus on what God is doing for us this day. And uh, I think that's how we ought to come to the Lord's house on Sunday. Nothing wrong with work. Uh, I try to avoid it as much as I can, but uh, there's nothing wrong with work. Nothing wrong with amusements. And leisure in their place. But we should set those things aside. When we come to the, the Lord's house. We, if we expect the Lord to do something. Then and move in our midst. Then we should set aside uh, the uh, thing. We should sanctify ourselves for this time in the Lord's house. Um, sometimes when we're coming to church, Gavin. Uh, wants to listen to stuff like uh, the Beach Boys or whatever. And I said, no, we're on our way to church. Let's get our minds uh, on uh, uh, focused on the things of God as much as we can. And of course, there's always distractions, but we need to minimize those and sanctify ourselves when it comes to the, the Lord's house and where the Lord is going to be uh, moving. Not only the focus of the people, but notice the faith of the priests. They had to step into the water. In verse 15, it tells us that. That when they, there, no 
there, there was nothing happened until they stepped into the brim of the water. No indication of what was about to happen. They didn't, I don't know if they, they understood what God was getting ready to do, but um, they, they had to step out. They had to step uh, by faith into the water, carrying the ark, no less, at the risk of being washed away by the, the swift current of the flooded river, and they had to take that first step. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes we have to step forward in faith without seeing or knowing how God is going to make the way. They didn't know what God was going to do. All they know, they, they had been told to step into the water and, and didn't see what uh, was going to happen. And, and sometimes we just have to step forward without really knowing how God is going to make the way. Think about Abraham in his life. God came to him and said, I want you to get up from the earth, earth counties and I want you to travel to a land uh, that I'll, I'll show thee. And I can almost hear this conversation between Abraham and God. And Abraham says, well, um, where are we going? What's our final destination? And God said, I'll tell you when we get there. And, uh, and that's what happened. Well, then later on, uh, uh, Abraham was called upon to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And, um, you know, God had already made it clear to Abraham that Isaac was going to be the one that would carry on the lineage and would, would uh, uh, he would be the one from whom the great nation of Israel uh, would come. And yet, here's God telling him, offer your son as a sacrifice. And Abraham didn't know how all that was going to work out, but he did. And, and he did offer. If you, if you read the, the wording of that whole passage there, you see that God wasn't just, he didn't just say, okay, no, I didn't mean it. No, God did not say, kill your son. He said, offer your son as a sacrifice. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Abraham had the knife in his hand, upraised, ready to kill his own son. He offered it. He, he, he had given him to the Lord. And that's when God stopped him and said, okay, now I'm going to show you how the provision is going to be. And there was a ram and he became the, the substitute. But God, Abraham did offer uh, Isaac. So he had, to, he had to step forward not knowing how uh, it was going to work out. Tithing. Say, you're not supposed to teach on tithing. That's the pastor's job. Uh, well, uh, I, uh, I think I can get away with it. But, uh, you know, sometimes in tithing, we don't know how it's going to work out. And, and that's why God calls on us to give the first tenth, not what's left over. And um, uh, when people be, are first saved or, or first get convicted about tithing and they want to start, they say, I don't know how this is going to work. I mean, I'm just barely making uh, ends meet now. The bills are just barely getting paid. If I take 10% or more of my income and just give it to the Lord right off the top, how's it going to work? And we don't always know how it's going to work. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> uh, 
I've been tithing since I was a kid because dad said he'd kill me if I didn't do it, you know. So every time I got 25 cents allowance, two and a half cents uh, went in the offering. And uh, he caught me trying to saw a penny in half one time to give that half. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, uh, you know, I, and he taught me that from, from the earliest day. And so I've always tithed. And there have been times I didn't know how the bills were going to be paid. And I couldn't take the check register and show you where it came from. But God's always provided. And uh, that comes from stepping out. Uh, going to the mission field. Um, I remember when, when uh, Dad took us to Brazil. And I didn't know it uh, at the time. I, I figured it out later. We really couldn't afford to go on the support that we had. But uh, we went anyway. And God provided. And uh, I, I didn't miss any meals. So... Uh, uh, it was a it was a blessing God provided, and then New Testament in the New Testament spiritual leaders are our pastors, uh, not the priests, but the pastors. And when God gives them a vision for the church to step forward, we are to prayerfully follow them as we see them following Christ. And a wise pastor does not lead recklessly. He, he, he's prayerful about the things that he leads the church to do. But when he leads the church to do something, look what it says there in Hebrews 13 7. Remember them which have the rule over you. you. Say, well, who is that? Who have spoken unto you the word of God. That pretty much settles it right there. Talking about uh, our pastor. Whose faith follow. They, they, we need to look at their faith and say that they've got that faith. We're going to follow them. Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Don't have time to elaborate on that. But uh, uh, the faith of the priest can be likened to the faith of our pastor. And we are to follow him as uh, he follows Christ. And then, thirdly, the familiarity of the passing. In verse 16... It says the waters stood up and rose up upon a heap. And in verse 17, it says they passed over on dry <coughs> ground. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, it wasn't muddy. I think they were raising dust when they walked across. But now, 40 years later, they crossed the Jordan in the same manner. And uh, I'm sure many of them uh, that were... Maybe children or teenagers, when they made the, the Red Sea crossing, they said, you know what, this really looks familiar. And God has done it again. But you know, there's also some differences. At the Red Sea, the uh, the water parted. It says that the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. So you got two walls of water, and they're walking between them. Um, I've got a good story about that. I don't have time to tell. Well, at the Jordan crossing now, it says that the upriver waters piled up in a heap. Well, let's face it, water doesn't just pile up. <laughs> I've never seen waters in a heap. Water finds its own level. But in this case, the water is piled up in a heap. Uh, but 
you know, the, the, the water piled up and then downriver, it says the waters just ran away. So on the one side, you've got this towering pile of water and on the other side, a dry riverbed. And it, it, the idea just came to me that God is not limited or obligated to doing things one particular way. He could have parted the Jordan just like he parted the Red Sea. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll show you something a little different here. And uh, he certainly did. They may have expected a replay of the Red Sea, but God showed them that he can accomplish things any way that it pleases uh, him. Now, lastly, setting the application. The Red Sea crossing was perhaps the emblem of God bringing his people out of Egypt. And God did bring them out of Egypt. But when they crossed the Jordan, God was bringing them in to the promised land. And I'll leave you with this quote from the, it's in the, uh, the, the book, and you can find it and reread it later if you want. But it says, when God moves and commands us to follow, we move following his guidance. It takes faith to follow God through the river or the sea. If we have no faith, we are tempted to go back to where we think it is safe, as Israel desired many times to go back to Egypt. Instead of following God into what seems dangerous, we would rather stay bound to our sameness and seeming safety. When the other spies of Numbers 13 said no, Joshua said, go. The Lord is with us. Fear them not. That's faith. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, according to 1 John 5, 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and the wonderful things that you accomplished with Israel there and what it means to us today because you're still leading us. You're still at the forefront, taking us into uncharted territory. As you said in the and it says in the, in the book that you've not passed this way here before. We're always looking at new, uh, new horizons. We thank you that you're there leading us. Now we pray that you're blessed in the service to follow. Bless our pastor as he preaches to us. In Jesus' name, amen.